Hi, I'm Barry Hamaguchi. And I'm Jason Marcos. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Canadian Idol bronze medalist Carly Rae Jepsen tunneled a hole straight into the center of our collective craniums with her 2012 earworm, Call Me Maybe, and scored the world's biggest song of that year. But after her album Kiss failed to generate the same heat, her future as a pop sensation seriously hit the skids. In 2015, she returned with the album Emotion featuring the song Your Type, and although the album basked in the glow of critical acclaim, occult fandom, and hipster credibility, the majority of music consumers sent it straight to voicemail. <laughs> I don't know I what like I'm saying that. anymore. <laughs> Do people even know what voicemail is anymore? Um, hello again. It's hello. It, hello, it's me. I've been um, wondering... Wait. Do we need sorry, to record no, just, another? Yeah. I guess we should record another warm-up conversation while we're here. We 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 just recorded an episode and we're recording them back to back. So we're just going to pretend like that didn't happen. Aside from the fact that I just acknowledged it, um, I'd like you to oh, know. Did you, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted you to know that I have a new mic set up this week. You can see it clearly in the camera. I can. What I can't see clearly in the camera is you. Yeah, and now I have a new pop filter that's completely blocking my face. I can see basically most of you. My dainty ladylike face is being completely blocked <laughs> by this <laughs> pop filter. Um, no, um, you know, because you've recently upgraded your microphone. Um, I was noting the improved audio quality from your micro, your new microphone. I was very jealous. Um, I fully did not get a new microphone. I've had this microphone lying around, but I got a boom arm. I got a new pop filter. Um, it's a different type of mic so that hopefully, um, I was noticing in a lot of our recordings that I have a lot of really off-putting mouth sounds. <laughs> you know, that's it, called, th those are called opinions, Barry. <laughs> You can just hear how jowly I am. I just feel like you can hear my face sagging and, um, you know, my, your gums. so I upgraded from my old microphone, the, the face sag mouth noise 2000 to this dynamic microphone, which will hopefully not pick up quite so much background noise. Cause that was the other thing is you could also hear background noise in this room that I'm in. You could hear my feet shuffling around. You could hear my chair squeaking. Cause I'm sitting in like an out indoor outdoor chair basically. Cause we don't have a chair budget around here. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, but let your friends know to like, and subscribe and, uh, you know, maybe eventually we will get a chair budget. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're, we won't. we're, we're a long way off. We're doing this for shits and giggles folks. Mostly. Fun, fun and not profit. Definitely not profit. Um, no profit. Yeah. Cause we're not trying to put that kind of pressure on ourselves. We're not trying no, to put, no. yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to have the pressure of um, needing to put out a quality product to satisfy some ulterior motive aside from just seeing my friend on a Google meet once a week and talking at each other's faces because well, it's truly a novelty in this in this well, year. It's, it's now now the only pressure we have is the pressure to hear the sound of our own voices, mm -hmm. which you know, fine. Are we, are we addicted to hearing our own voices in our own heads? <laughs> I, um, I like that I've gotten used to it. I think it's that it's that thing of when you start doing this and you hear your you hear your voice in your head 
for the first time. It's like listening to your answering machine message for the first time and you go like, oh shit, is that what my voice sounds like? It's terrifying. Yeah. And you get used yeah. to it. I, I'm, I'm glad that I've gotten used to that. You're no longer like hiding from it. No, no, no. Well, now I recognize that this is what my voice sounds like. Versus yeah, like, because I mean, isn't there, is there like a scientific reasoning behind that? Like the voice that you normally hear of yourself in your head is kind of like vibrating off of your jawbone. Am I making this all up? No, no, you're okay. not. It's because okay. we hear, our, you know, our vocal, you know, where we produce the sound is in the same structure as where we hear the sound. And so there's a resonance that your skull just makes. Okay. Right. Like, so what you hear in your head you of your hear. voice is not what everyone else is hearing. Yeah. I don't okay. think. In my mind, I don't sound as nasally as I do. Okay. <laughs> like, not nasally, but I, well, maybe it is nasal. I always, <laughs> I feel like I sound sort of congested all the time. And then it's mm. like, well, you know, I think I we both do. I, listening yeah. back to our recordings, we both have a little bit of congestion. Um, I, I sound very flummy. I can mm. hear every droplet of spit moving around inside of my mouth at every moment when I listen back to our recordings. And well, maybe no more horrifying. because of your pop filter. My pop filter. I need like a, a splatter guard. Is what I need. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't um, that what it's supposed to do? I don't anyway. know. But is that, to go back to this whole armchair expert thing we were having about um, uh-huh. where our voices come from, is that uh-huh. why, this is my, is that why when <laughs> singers sing they do that thing where you touch your thumb to the corner of your jaw and then your index finger to like the conch of your ear. I always heard this thing that it was because basically your thumb is taking the vibration from your jawbone and then it's transmitting it through like your index finger in into the conch of your ear and then the cup of your hand is supporting it somehow like projecting the true sound of your voice back into your ear. So that you can like hear yourself. Like if you're standing next to, if you're Mariah Carey standing next to Barbara Streisand and you just need to hear yourself in your head, you do this thing where you touch well, your thumb to your you, jaw and your index. So here's the ear. thing. Here's here. Quick, quick tip. <laughs> you don't have to be a freak and put your thumb on your jaw or anything. All you have to do is close your ear, like take your finger and like close your ear. Okay. You know, that fleshy part that's like at the front part of your ear. If <laughs> yeah, you just... If you just plug the hole like that with your finger, which is all Mariah Carey's doing, oh. she's not she's not touching her face. No, don't they? You know no. what I'm talking about, right? Where yeah, like, I know, okay. I know. It's just watch them again, though. Their their thumb doesn't touch anything. It's they're just closing I, no, the I ear swear, hole. Isn't it? I, I swear, some no. of them they take no, a vibration closing, from their jawbone. It's, it's no, you close <laughs> you close the ear hole because that allows you to just hear inside. It's if like you, it's like having it's like having an in ear monitor. If you, you have any insights on this, it. please please email us at flopper. No, you close it so that you can actually hear yourself. Because like if you're if you're if you're singing this to other people, because it because it basically what it does is if you do that, it blocks the external sound. Right. I'm gonna so look into what this. You hear, so Next what week, you hear is purely from yourself next week one of us is going to offer a flop retraction on this my god yeah it's tune not in to be find me. out which one of us <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh, okay um, take us to break jason just i tell, you the, know, tell the I, folks what they want to hear i will i was like trying to i was like what what do we want to hear um <laughs> as always uh you'll be able to hear no no, no. you won't just tell we need them. the script here. We need the script here, sir. Remember what I'm trying to say. <laughs> you don't have a script. 
No, I mean I do, but it just says mention website. So I'm like, you should just so read that. Like, I'm like blanking. I'm like mention website and email. No, um, you know, as always, uh, songs and clips, videos, uh, everything that we talk about on this podcast will be featured on our website, flopperdeemer.com. Uh, you can email us. Please email us at flopperdeemer at gmail.com. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us your theories. Give us some suggestions for flops that you think should be redeemed. Um, we remain ready and open to receive your feedback. <laughs> and with that, let's go to break before we talk about Carly Rae Jepsen. Yay. We're back. I'm talking about Carly Rae Jepsen today. Beloved, 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 beloved Carly Rae Jepsen. Was I going to start out with my thesis? You yes. wanted me to start out with my thesis. Yeah, already, I, I, think, already, I think because already to your point. Already just breaking the script. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, I just think that to your point, like, she's beloved, right? We're, we're not saying Carly Rae Jepsen is a flop. Oh, right? she is, though. She is. Well, yeah, but I think getting at like what that means. When you look at her sales number, she is abysmal. She's in the gutter. <laughs> but, but she's I, the, love I mean, her. I love her too. Okay. I, she's a fantastic. I don't, I don't love her as much as like a lot of people love her, but I love her nonetheless. And there are specific things about her that I'm queuing into. And to start off with, like the main thesis or the main reason that I wanted to talk about Carly Rae Jepsen. Carly Rae Jepsen belongs to this unique strata of singers that I like who are non-LGBT identifying female artists who somehow tap into like hashtag relatable content to me as like an LGBT identifying individual. Like there's something about when you're a gay person, when you're a minority, I feel like this happens at any in any way that you don't see yourself represented in the media, that you start to try and project yourself onto something. You start mm-hmm. to try and find things that you relate to in other people who maybe aren't like you, but are are saying things that sound or that resonate with you. It's mm-hmm. like the it's like a horseshoe crab that can't find a shell and sticks itself inside inside of like an old tin can, right? Well, well, just I think horseshoe crabs are the oh, ones no, no, no. that Hermit do crabs. not have shells. Yeah, hermit say. crabs. Horseshoe crabs, we harvest for their blood. Okay. It's like a hermit crab that can't find a new shell. And it's like, you know, yeah. you find a can because you're like, well, this can approximates a shell for me. So, and it's good so, enough. So in this analogy, we are the crabs and Carly Rae Jepsen is the discarded can <laughs> that we have found to wear as our house. Yes. <laughs> Because emotionally we cannot be fulfilled. I mean, we were talking about Ali Alexander in years and years yes. in the previous episode and how important it is to have out queer people speaking openly about queer experience so that you can see yourself and so that you yeah. can experience, you can vicariously experience like relatable emotions through someone that you feel like that is me. And for a lot of gay folks growing up, like you really don't have that. And so you start to displace those feelings onto other people and other emotions that are kind of like analogs to them. Mm-hmm. And Carly Rae Jepsen had 
like mentally become that for me in a grouping with a bunch of other artists that I think, you know, is part of why, I mean, we'll get into it, but Carly Rae Jepsen is disproportionately, I feel, disproportionately popular with gay audiences. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about other artists that have become gay icons, your divas like Judy Garland or your Madonnas, your Cher's, your Barbara Streisand's, Yes, those artists have disproportionately large gay fan bases, but those artists are also kind of worldwide icons. They are wildly successful artists who also are disproportionately liked by gay fans. Carly Rae Jepsen is almost like unknown, I would say, (laughs) to like a mainstream pop audience. Yeah, I think a lot of like when I, if if I ever bring her up, like, um, a lot of people, straight people, typically are like, they know they the one song. Maybe. They know yeah. "Call Me Maybe" and they think that that's it. Um, I will say, I do have a friend Aubrey who um, loves Carly Rae Jepsen, and actually, we went we went together to go see. Um, we saw her at the Wildern. Okay, um, I guess it was maybe just last year, but um, no, like fully, like she's probably the outlier in that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think I, to, to your point, like there's I, there's it's definitely not like zero, but. Yeah. I mean, because I would say the same thing about like a lot of the people that I work with who are non-LGBT identifying women, like are big Carly Rae Jepsen fans. Like there are, there are Carly Rae Jepsen fans because as we'll find out, like she somehow ends up getting a lot of hipster credibility to her despite being a bubblegum pop artist for all know, intents okay, and purposes. You, you, you know what you just, you know, it's really interesting to me. And, and I mean, I know this isn't revolutionary, but like. <laughs> Yes, I, I would say that maybe like more of more of the women that I know and girls that I know, even if they're not LGBTQ identifying, they're they generally have a positive perception of Carly Rae Jepsen. Mm-hmm. The men to a person are like what? Uh? Oh, but they're always like they're always like huh? do a what? Do a leap of who? Like you know like it's like why do men not listen to women? <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting too, when I was reading like reviews for Carly Rae Jepsen's songs, like the Uh different perceptions that people will have. And I don't, I didn't really dig into the personal lives of the reviewers, but by and large, like a lot of, well, no, across the board, there's a very, there's a big spectrum of reaction to the type of music that Carly Rae Jepsen makes, both like sonically and lyrically. And I think, you know, we'll find that all out, but. Okay. Um. Did I get through my thesis? Carly Rae Jepsen. Yeah, yeah. Gay icon she's, to me. She's a gay, gay icon, icon to the world. But, you know, specifically for that reason, and I think when we talk more specifically about this song, like this song really becomes to me like anthemic in terms of if you're like a queer kid looking to place your feelings somewhere, it is this type of song. And I don't know if, I don't know if that's still the case. We'll talk about it. Who is Carly Rae Jepsen? Because clearly, if you're a straight man listening to our podcast, you may not know. Um, She's a Canadian. We're talking to you, the four of you. (laughs) The four. If that. The 1.5 of you. Um, Carly Rae Jepsen, Canadian Idol alum, what hit wonder to most, pop music darling to gay men and music snobs alike. So in 2007, a 21-year-old Carly Rae Jepsen gets her first taste of fame when she places third on season five of Canadian Idol. 
In an interview with BuzzFeed in 2015, she later refers to this result as the best possible outcome for her because it gave her the exposure without the trappings of the Idol franchise record deal. And we've talked about this before in terms uh-huh. of the people finishing in first place often don't get the best deal or they often don't have the biggest long-term success. And I think that is one of the reasons why is that when you do win one of these reality television competition singing series, you're often you know, funneled directly into a very specific system that may or may not suit you. Yeah. Like, do we know who won? Like, are they that year? Like, are they any? I mean, this is like the second to last season of Canadian Idol. I don't think I could name I I don't think I could name any of the sixth winner, six winners of Canadian Idol. Yeah, same. So she quietly releases a debut album in Canada, 2008's folk tinged rock pop album Tug of War. Um, we did not get that album here at the time that it was released. It was only re-released later after she kind of hits it big. Um, so when this album is first released in 2008, it goes on to sell a reported 20,000 copies. So things are not looking to be on the up and up for her until, until 2011, when this random guy named Justin Bieber tweets out that Carly Rae Jepsen's new song, Call Me Maybe, is quote-unquote possibly the catchiest song he's ever heard. And what follows after Justin Bieber tweets this is just this firestorm of viral sensation that kind of subsumes Carly Rae Jepsen and indeed the world, launching her into the pop stratosphere. There was a viral lip syncing video featuring such notable individuals as uh, Carlos Peña Vega of Big Time Rush, uh, Ashley Tisdale of High School Musical, and um, Selena Gomez of Wizards of Waverly Place, and... At the time, Wild, Justin Bieber's girlfriend at the time. In my mind, Justin Bieber was like seven years old in 2011. But in fact... Yeah, no, he was not. He was a legal adult dating Selena Gomez at the time. And they make this lip syncing video. That video goes viral. On the heels of that, Carly Rae Jepsen is then signed to Scooter Braun's label Schoolboy Records. And um, I think she also has like a management deal with him. And Scooter Braun, if you don't know who he is, he is the manager of Justin Bieber. Later, he would also become the manager for Ariana Grande. Um, In this same year that Scooter Braun signs Carly Rae Jepsen, he also signs Korean rapper Psy to his label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he... So does he also have um, Shawn Mendes or no? I feel like there's like a laundry list of people that have yeah. been with him in the past. I know that currently know he, he's yeah. got Demi Lovato. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just as, as her manager, a lot of people will recognize his name because he was recently embroiled in a little bit of controversy with Taylor Swift. I mean, mm-hmm. who hasn't at this point, but <laughs> yeah, I was, That's a, I mean, he's got a big list not to get sidetracked on this, but Scooter Braun Scooter Braun negotiated to purchase Big Machine Records, which is the company that released Taylor Swift's first six albums. And as part of the deal, Scooter Braun acquired Taylor Swift's masters. And we've talked about this before with JoJo's masters getting tied up by her previous label. Um, The ownership of the masters thing, it's like this old school thing that labels always owned the masters and the artists never really had them. And it's really, the tide is really changing more recently as, you know, people are taking their music to streaming and there's more direct access for musicians to their fans and stuff that it seems fair, more fair for 
um, musicians to retain control of their masters. But unfortunately, Taylor Swift did not have control of her masters. This has nothing to do with Carly Rae Jepsen, by the way. But I thought this was really interesting because I had never really dug into it. It just seemed like another thing that Taylor Swift was involved in. Like Taylor Swift kind of embroils herself in a lot of these conflicts. But I think what she's actually doing is she's she's just used to calling people out. If she feels that she's been wrong, she's not going to hesitate to say like, hey, this this is fucked up. So her masters, basically all of the recorded version, original recorded versions of her songs belong to this man that I guess Taylor Swift just doesn't like. Yeah. And she feels that she feels or felt at the time that there was some nefarious reasoning behind this. Mm-hmm. The, the resolution. Yeah, I mean, now she's, yeah, now she's, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that now she's re-recording. Taylor yeah. Swift has opted to re-record all of her old material because it's it's really confusing, like exactly what masters are when you're like a complete outsider to the music industry. Like I've I, I had to read about it this morning when I was like, what is the whole deal with masters anyway? Like, what is the big deal? But uh-huh. they are a big deal. Taylor Swift, yeah, get them. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway. I wonder what that means for her relationship, like as as Scooter Braun, you know. You know, Demi Lovato, Ariana Grande, you know, Carly Rae Jepsen. Yeah. Okay. Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is a huge artist. And so, like, it does does the acrimony extend to the artist in his roster? I mean, you know, you know Justin Bieber, um, I think at the time that it was all happening, like, Justin Bieber, Demi Lovato, Ariana Grande all came forward in support of Scooter Braun. Basically, mm-hmm. you know, just saying, like, it's business. He yeah. did nothing wrong. Yeah. Um, and she had sold, I mean, Taylor, I mean, when Big Machine, I mean, that was part of the deal. Yeah. Right? And it like went, when well, Big Machine sold so Taylor like, originally. Taylor Swift's big problem with we the whole arrangement. Yeah, we're going way off. But Taylor Swift's whole thing was like, she had wanted to buy back the rights to her masters. She had tried and Big Machine would not agree to it. Big Machine uh-huh. wanted her to re-sign her contract for like, more albums in order for her to gain the rights back to her first six albums. And she just didn't want to do that. She had a better deal waiting for her at universal. And that's, I think where she feels like the shady business was happening was that like she, she wanted her rights back. So at that point it, it just, it all sounds shady once it's just like, well, this company just wanted to get the biggest payday because, and actually I think that Taylor Swift benefited from calling out this whole thing because in the end, the rights to those masters were ended up being kind of toxic to Scooter Braun and he had to let go of them. He had he sold yeah. those for like 300 million to some other party, some other holding company. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, if you didn't know who Scooter Braun was, that's who Scooter Braun is. He kind of pulls Carly Rae Jepsen under his wing. I kind of wonder looking at his track record, if he was just in the business of seeing people that went quote unquote viral uh-huh. and kind of trying to strike that iron while it was hot, so to speak. Cause just like, you know, Justin Bieber was discovered on YouTube. Psy makes this big viral splash with Gangnam style. And then, you know, Carly Rae Jepsen gets this big viral surge based off of like this video that Justin Bieber makes, you know? Yeah. 
Call Me Maybe goes on to become the biggest selling single worldwide in 2012 and the number two single of that year according to the Billboard Hot 100 year end charts for 2012. Behind Somebody That I Used to Know by Gautier featuring Kimbra and Ahead of We Are Young by Fun featuring Janelle Monae. And I think that this is a really interesting cross-section of time to look at the Billboard Hot 100 in 2012 to look at like the number one song that year in the country was like an alternative song. Yeah. And the number three song, like neither, none of those, neither of those two songs was a hip hop song, an R and B song, a rap song. And they were flanking this like bubblegum pop song. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, that was kind of interesting to look at the year 2012 through that lens. Yeah. Like almost (laughs) 10 years ago. Yeah. So she's immediately faced with a lot of hype to live up to. She's the first Canadian woman to top the Billboard Hot 100 since Avril Lavigne's girlfriend in 2007. And she joins pop sensations Kesha and Lady Gaga among female artists to top the U.S. charts with their debut singles. Um, For Kesha, it was TikTok. And then for Lady Gaga, it was Just Dance. Ah. Um, You know, in a write-up in The Hollywood Reporter that came out when Call Me Maybe came out, they noted that this was kind of fortuitous for Lady Gaga and Kesha because Kesha goes on to have seven top 10 songs um, after her debut. And then Lady Gaga gets 10 more top 10 songs after that. So, you know, by these measurements, the expectations for Carly Rae Jepsen are very, very high. Yeah. Nothing that Carly Rae Jepsen does after Call Me Maybe ever matches that level of success. And so for all intents and purposes to the majority of the music listening public, Carly Rae Jepsen becomes a one-hit wonder. Mm-hmm. She releases a follow-up single to Call Me Maybe, um, the single Good Time featuring Owl City. Probably heard that song too. It reached number eight on the Billboard Hot 100. You know it. It's it's kind of a big throwaway song to me. I, I couldn't yeah. even... I mean, it's a song called Good Time. Like, what is it about? Yeah, so that song, you know, it does relatively well. Not quite as much buzz as Call Me Maybe. And then uh-huh. on the heels of that, they release her her U.S. debut album, Kiss. And um, it peaks at number six on the Billboard 200 with 46,000 sales. And ultimately, it sells somewhere in the ballpark of 300,000 copies, which is pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Pretty terrible for an album whose lead single sold 18 million copies worldwide. They, they try to save the album with some subsequent album singles, um, the song This Kiss and Tonight I'm Getting Over You, which are all songs that like I kind of recognize, but you realize like at the time that this album came out, you really didn't hear these songs anywhere. And so yeah. those songs chart at 86 and 90 respectively. And for all intents and purposes, the album is dead at this point. So in prepping for her follow-up, Scooter Braun, her manager her label manager, he notes his disappointment in the performance of Kiss. And he talks about trying to reverse this precedent. Like he talks about how, you know, obviously it's, it's great that she had the biggest song in the world in 2012, but it was all kind of flash in a pan. Yeah. It was all dampened by the failure of the album. And so he was saying, moving into her second U S release that they were going to focus on making an overall great album. Like that their goal for the second album was to find a sound that would get her like the critical acclaim that they felt that she deserved, um, for the entire album. 
So despite her kind of bubblegum pop bona fides, much is made of this at this time about the hipster cred that she is starting to garner by working with people like Dev Hines, who's Blood Orange, we've talked about kind of the hype surrounding his production. He worked with um, MKS. We talked about MKS in the song Flatline. Um, Did we talk about any other Blood Orange songs? No. Okay. He was just up there. He was hyped up because he was working with Solange. He was working with Sky Ferreira. Um, He was actually, you know, if you watch the Grammys this past week, he was playing bass for Harry Harry Styles in his performance. Oh. Yeah, I was like, hey, that's Dev Hines. He's just like, in the back, just grooving. So in that period of time leading up to her second release, she's garnering some hipster credibility. People are talking up these collaborators that she's reporting reportedly working with like dev mm-hmm. hines um she's also reportedly working with um rostam batman gleesh batman gleesh yeah, from from vampire, <laughs> vampire weekend. weekend uh yes. she's working with heim she's reportedly working with like ariel reichshade who um also worked with dev hines on those songs for solange and sky ferreira and so this is i think where you get an interesting vibe moving forward for carly ray jepsen because up to this point, she's mostly known for these throwaway pop songs. Uh-huh. Very light, very airy, almost contentless, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, yeah. here she is kind of working on her songwriting, working on teaming up with people whose sounds are still pop, but somewhere left of center, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like basically creating like an indie sensibility yeah and i think that this does two things one i think this gets her a lot of hype on music resources that have a little bit of critical credibility stuff like your pitch mm-hmm. for, your pitchforks your rolling stones your spins right like they're all talking up these collaborators but also i think this lowers the bar a little bit on the expectations for this album sales wise that i don't think that you're going into this album thinking it's going to match the mainstream appeal that call me maybe had yeah they're not saying oh she's working with max martin and you yeah. know dr luke or whoever like the, the you know the 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 big heavy hitters of pop it's like we're going for small not like smaller more critically acclaimed yeah boutique it's um like, it's uh like fox searchlight <laughs> it's very artisanal it's artisanal production a24 <laughs> yeah so they're setting it up like this and kind of perplexingly the lead single that we get off of this follow-up album is the song i really like you which to me is the spiritual sister or like cousin or stepsister third cousin once removed of call me maybe yeah like it has that written all over it that like oh this is the success that you're trying to follow up call me maybe with is like kind of a comparable song in that same genre yeah i think we were talking about that with years and years too right how like moving into the palo santo album that lead single off of that album not one of our favorite tracks but it feels like the natural progression of the lead single from their debut album Mm -hmm. and so I found it kind of perplexing that in as much as they were trying to position her as the pop star with hipster credibility, they're kind of subverting that by releasing a lead single that's solidly pop because this song is um, co-written by Peter Svensson, who we've talked about, um, Mm -hmm. former member of the Cardigans, later to become one of the big 
Swedish pop song hit makers of the 2010s. He wrote um, yeah. Breathe In for Ariana Grande, among other songs. No, I get it. I get it. This is like, you know, I really, really like you, kind of the... It's just a throwaway song. They, you know, like you said, it's the, it's the follow-up, but, but does it set it up? Does it, how does it play with those conventions and like the expectations they set when really yeah. your type is. But again, like even the song, your type, the bona fides of the song, your type are very, very strictly pop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but also I think just an incredible song in its own right. So the song, your type, it was the third single from the album emotion. It was released in November, 2015 failed to chart anywhere. The song was written by Carly Rae Jepsen, one of her longtime collaborators, uh, Tavish Crow. He's actually her guitarist, I think. He shows up in the oh. call. He's the guy in the Call Me Maybe video, the, the little gay baiting scene at the end uh-huh, where the guy uh-huh. lawn, mowing the lawn gives his number to the guitarist. Uh-huh. That's Tavish Crow, and he actually shows up as a frequent collaborator of Carly Rae Jepsen's throughout mm. her discography. So they co-write this song with um, Rami Yacoub, who is a frequent collaborator of Max Martin. So this guy, Rami Yacoub, he actually co-wrote and co-produced a lot of Max Martin hits for Britney Spears in the Oops, I Did It Again era. So he was a co-writer, co-producer on Oops, I Did It Again, Stronger, Stronger, Lucky, and Not Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. He also worked on like a lot of the Backstreet Boys stuff. So this guy's pop bona fides go back, right? This uh-huh. is not some yeah. hipster credibility act. Yeah. This is a guy with, he's got his his feet firmly planted in like Britney Spears' backyard. Along with the other co-songwriter, co-producer, Carl Falk, they did the song One Last Time for Ariana Grande. And then with one of the other co-writers, Wayne Hector, they all did, they all worked on the song Starships by Nicki Minaj. So I think that it's interesting that almost this, this identical team with the inclusion of um, David Guetta, I think also worked on Starships. But this exact yeah. same team writes the song Your Type, and in I think the same year writes the song yeah. Starships for Nicki Minaj. I think they also did Pound the Alarm. It, but that's also with David Guetta, right? Because it has that David Guetta sound to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wayne Hector, who was another co-writer on this song, he worked on one of my favorite Britney Spears non-single songs, which is, which is the song Out from Under from her Circus album. I think I've mentioned that song like seven mm-hmm. times, just because I always want to include that song on my playlist for the week. Um, oh, Wayne Hector. It's a good song. Wayne Hector wrote the song Picking Up the Pieces with Paloma Faith. <laughs> and this Picking Up the Pieces song, it's another one of those songs that I project my gay life onto. Well, Interesting. It's, it's, I, it, I remember it, but yeah. I don't like what, because Paloma Faith, she's kind of a niche artist too, right? Like in that, in the sense that like hasn't broken through here. Yeah. But. I think big deal, big deal in the UK, not a big deal here at all. Um, Wayne Hector also wrote, I hate this part by Pussycat Dolls. Yes. I think you hear a lot of all of those songs. Yeah. In your type. Yeah. Now we get into kind of like the, the feelings part of this. And this is the why, the why I like this song. And this goes into that narrative of like, what is the nature of queer iconography? Who are the non-LGBT identifying individuals that we look towards and somehow see ourselves reflected in? You know, because I was curious about like um, the iconography of Judy Garland. Like why, 
why are we so into Judy Garland culturally? Not not necessarily you or me individually, but mostly I am. not me individually. <laughs> you know, because I had taken this LGBT studies class in college, and he talked about the iconography of Judy Garland and um, the idea of Judy Garland as a diva in the sense that central to the identity of a traditional diva is the idea of suffering that that's not that's not something that we necessarily carry over into like our modern definitions of diva when we call someone a diva yeah. now we don't think of that traditional definition of suffering like tragedy tragedy like tra- yeah like a tragic in the greek sense of the word and that you see someone who is suffering like i think that yeah. like i never thought about this this way but like judy garland was not a traditional Hollywood starlet. Oh yeah. I think that like, I could be paraphrasing here, but I think that like, um, mayor Samuel Mayer, like he would talk about how fat and ugly she was Uh huh. like dog faced. Um, I mean, she carried that with her forever. Yeah. And then, you know, you see the way that it took her down. Mm -hmm. And so, which is to say that, there's some aspect to that that gay people look at and relate to. Mm-hmm. Sad but true. <laughs> and so when it comes to Carly Rae Jepsen, she falls into this category. And, and this song, Your Type, it comes at, as like the pinnacle of this type of song that I somehow project my own identity into because these are songs that are about unrequited love, but a very specific type of self-conscious unrequited love where you yourself are acknowledging like I'm, I'm not good enough for you in some way, or I understand exactly why things between you and I are not going to work out. Yeah. And so when it comes to these songs, I, I, I started thinking about this because actually I was surprised to see the number of times that in reviews for this song, your type, there were comparisons made to dancing on my own by Robin, Mm. which I think is a song that I relate to on much the same level. And it is that thing of talking directly to the person, you know, using that second person dress of saying like you, like you're over, you're in the corner or I'm in the corner watching you in the corner, watching watching you kiss her, you know, and that that feeling of kind of like isolation, of being left out of something, not being at the center of something. Um, well, it's like it's not yours. Like you can never have that. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it's really weird to talk about, like identifying with that type of feeling and that kind of sensibility. But you talk about like with queer the queer experience. I mean, how many of us have had that right that specific thing where it's like you know, growing up, maybe we couldn't date openly, Mm -hmm. right? Or didn't even know who was out. And you might've had a crush on someone in school, but of course they're nine times out of 10 straight Mm -hmm. and you could be friends with all of them. And it's, you know, you could be great friends, but at the end of the day, romantically, they're going to go at the dance and like kiss this other girl. And it has nothing to do with whether or not you would actually on an emotional level mm-hmm. be compatible. It's purely just because like you're on two completely separate paths and you can't bridge that. And I yeah. think that this music speaks to that sort of sense of longing and sort mm-hmm. of the knowingness of that. Right. 
Yeah. That self-awareness, knowing that it's, that you can't bridge that, right? Like that, that, that really cuts. Yeah. And, you know, in that, these are songs that are by cisgendered, non-LGBT identifying women. Uh I think it's interesting because in as much as I relate to those feelings, I think that these women in this modern era, there's a certain amount of criticism lodged against artists like Carly Rae Jepsen or the other song that I think of a lot in this regard is You Were Meant For Me by Taylor Swift. I constantly gender swap that song in my head whenever I listen to it because she's she's basically talking about how much of a tomboy she is and how she knows that this guy who's like her best friend who comes to her for emotional support will never like a girl like her Uh because, you know, she just wears jeans and stuff like that. And he's just into the, the girl with the cheerleader outfit on, you know? Uh Um, but I, I think that in the era that era that we live in songs like that as a woman are perceived of by some as like a little bit reductive, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that sense of, I, I think it's that sense of vulnerability. It's like, you know, that like maybe the traditional, like sort of heteronormative patriarchal sort of just society we live in yeah. rejects vulnerability as a ma- a thing as a masculine thing. But also vulnerability when it, it vulnerable vulnerability in regards to like a man. Yeah. Basically positioning yourself to be like my entire existence, my entire all of my happiness relies upon this unrequited affection that I seek from this man. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you do see it sometimes. Well, what you, you see that sometimes in, in, in R and B and in soul, right? Like deployed in that way, but you almost never see it in pop. Yeah. And if you do, I feel like it's, it's definitely relegated to, um, it's relegated to like a, a uniquely adolescent perspective. I feel like that's where we feel very safe with those sentiments is like, if you're, if you're a teenager and you're first, you're experiencing this for the first time, like that's where we feel maybe a little more safe, but it's just, it's just so interesting to me because Carly Rae Jepsen has something about her that is perpetually a teenager. And I, it it took me a long time to realize like she's fully in her thirties. Yeah. Right. Like you don't, you don't necessarily get that from her that sense that she is an older woman. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's inter- it's interesting because we talk we were talking about years and years in the last episode and your type, the song your type comes out the same year as um Take Shelter. Mm. They're both in uh 2015, I believe. And um it's interesting just sort of like the the different influences and and and, and whatever like musically, like whether 90s or 80s synth there's like that very synth pop Mm-hmm. The, you know, one might be more synthy, the other might be more electro. But yeah, just that, that sort of, I, I don't know, like you have that, if they're both sort of queer or queer adjacent artists, like you have this like confluence of of similar types of songs and audience, like almost like a, I don't know what to say. Like, how do you say it? But like, you know, it's just like we had a, a choice of of artists to go to that were like speaking to our specific yeah. things. And um, you know, I really I just like you, I really enjoy this song. I, I actually enjoy your type quite a bit. Um, but you know what's interesting too is 
you know, I, you know, reading about it was she, she talks about, and I guess in her life performances that she wrote this song about someone who ended up being gay. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, and so like, like, it's this... almost like a mirror, ex- but, but maybe that's like just for show, but I don't know, but yeah. you know. Yeah. But I think that that's like an important subtext to the song lyrically yeah. is that there's an acknowledgement that like, I'm not the type of girl for you. Like I, uh-huh. I'm not going to pretend that I'm the type of girl you call more than just a friend, you know? And, you know, to, to kind of gender swap that or to sexuality swap that mentally, I don't know. It, it, it puts me into a weird mental place of like, it's just funny because, you know, I've been in a monogamous committed relationship for like, you know, the past 15 years or so, but like, it always takes me back into that place of like, when I was a teenager, when I was coming Uh to terms with these feelings and, you know, to your point, uh, you know, when you were talking about what it is like to come to the realization that you were a, a, a gay teenager and how isolating that is. Um, and that's something that I, I wonder if that will ever change. Like, cause I was thinking about, you know, kids today, kids today coming out and everyone's pan yeah. and all this, you yeah. know, but I was like, at the same time, I feel like there is, there's always going to be that feeling of being on an Island. Once you realize that like, this is something that potentially like you don't share with anyone that you know, like, yeah. just statistically speaking, you sure. probably, probably your parents are not gay. Right. Probably most of your friends. Probably most of your friends are not gay. You might not know anyone gay at your school. You know, Mm -hmm. if you do, the chances that they're actually your friend are, you know, kind of low. It's it's like statistics. Like I fully full disclosure, I failed statistics in high school, (laughs) so I can't do the math. But you know, it's like that whole like. 10 times 10 times 10, like your chances are probably like one in a hundred thousand. <laughs> oh, for sure. In my, in my rough mathematical estimation that you will be around someone at the point where you realize that you're gay or you come to terms that you're gay, that there's going to be another gay person in close proximity to you. Yeah. Who, who, who also, who reciprocates. Who reciprocates <laughs> or who is even, who is even friendly to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know what it's like now for kids. I, mean, I, I don't know. Are, but gay I mean, rivalry, I, gay I, hostility. Oh man, when we were in high school, it was very like, <laughs> uh, uh-uh, I'm the one, you know, or like, uh, uh-uh, uh, not her, you know, like. <laughs> but yeah, no, so true. I mean, because because you know, obviously, quote unquote, kids nowadays. I mean, there's like the Troy Sivans. There's yeah. There are people who are like sort of openly gay and writing music about younger experiences right in the way that like other artists have done for decades um that maybe kids can relate to uh and it there's there's maybe a general sense that that you're not as alone as as you thought but i mean physically you may be very much alone and who knows where you are and and what your community is like not everyone has yeah you know a super progressive um you know, family or, or even community. And so I think, yeah, the universality yeah. of it is still there. I mean, shades of it may change, but. Cause look at me, like I grew up with a super progressive family, super supportive family. I, I, I never questioned whether it would be an issue with my parents. Um, when I decided to come out, it's still, I still didn't come out in high school, did not come out yeah. to my parents in high school. Um, you know, 
growing up in San Francisco, super progressive city. Again, we had a guy from ACT UP coming to tell us about how he threw blood at Diane Feinstein in the 90s. <laughs> um, and and yet, you know, despite all that, I still didn't feel comfortable because it 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 almost has nothing to do with your support system externally. It has to do with like how you feel about yourself internally. Well, about like, yeah, it, about like yeah. what you believe, what you believe is going to happen to you. Because I feel like, regardless of everything else, like just by witnessing the other ninety percent of the population around you, you formulate yeah. this idea that one day that will be me. One day I will well, be that ninety percent of people out there that are seemingly happy, seemingly well adjusted, seemingly quote unquote normal. And so regardless of your surroundings, once you realize that that's not the track you're on, it's, yeah. it's, it's a little jarring. It's terrifying. Well, and it's, and it, it is true that like, you know, as much as there's more acceptance and there's a huge amount of visibility, well, we say huge relative to, to, to what it was before. And, you know, the size of the population, um, visibility in the media, um, it being queer is still in the minority. And, you know, coming yeah. out, even if you have support, is sort of a declaration that you and an acknowledgement that you will live in some kind of minority for the rest of your life. Yeah. And there are a lot of things that come with that. I mean, <clears throat> what I think is interesting now is sort of, you know, in the in the last few decades, there's been sort of we we understand gender as being fluid, more fluid, right? Mm -hmm. And not a binary. And we also understand sexuality as sort of that, right? There's, there's, there, we have different words and different understandings of people's sexuality. And so I think we're a little bit more understanding that you can fall somewhere on a spectrum, mm -hmm. right? I think when we were coming out, it was like, if you came out as gay, like you really can't go back. Like, yeah. and I'm not saying that anyone on the spectrum is going back, but, you know, I wonder what that means for someone who's maybe coming of age now and who sees gender as fluid and sexuality as a spectrum. And, you know, do you feel locked? Do you feel like you're making a choice that you are going to be locked into this decision the minute you come out and like you will never be able to unring that bell? Like, mm -hmm. what does that do? Right. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, all that to say, <laughs> your type is still a great song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um oh because you know what's funny is that like i i had been independently having these thoughts about a lot of these songs over the course of my life and i was thinking about it and i was like oh like do other people identify this stuff and there were write-ups by different people about like in talking about like why is carly Rae jepsen um disproportionately popular among gay men specifically there was a write-up and a lot of people talked about how like in emotions, there are, are different songs that are about like unabashedly hooking up and how they felt like that was like part and parcel with gay culture. But there were other people that talked about the same, this idea of like, yeah, like calling out the song gear type and saying there is something to like looking at someone from kind of from a distance and saying like, I know, I like, I know that you'll never like me in that Be way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then to even go a step beyond that. And this is something that I had never considered but actually fit perfectly in my mind once I read it was that your type, someone referred to it as like a trans girl anthem. Yeah. That I if saw you, that. that I did my research of it too. And it just makes sense lyrically. Like if you think about what trans women, 
have to go through, like heterosexual trans women have to go through every time that they like a man, a heterosexual cisgendered man who has certain expectations about, you know, the women that he, he is going to be dating, mm-hmm. that this is this a never ending and recurring incident uh-huh. for trans uh-huh. women to just kind of feel like, you know, a little sense of despair over, is this, is this someone that's going to be open to loving me? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that, 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 that was really like, oh, like that's, that really gets at the heart of, I think what this song gets at for me. Mm. Well, and I wonder, I wonder how much that, that like goes, I mean, you know, if you're comparing like sort of like the cis hetero world and listeners versus like the queer world, I've been in a monogamous long-term relationship as well, just like you. And it's like listening to these songs kind of puts me back in that. I, you know, I think about those times when that was very resonant for me, like mm-hmm. this situation might've been resonant. And I wonder if that's like something like of the two communities, do people who like, does a straight married couple who've been married for, you know, you've been, you've been in a relationship for 15 years. Say someone's been married for 15 years. Do they ever think about songs of longing as like something that like takes them back to that? Or are they like, eh, I don't need to listen to this because I'm not in that place. Like, do you get the same sense? Yeah. I, I'd just be curious. Cause I feel like that's a, it might be a uniquely sort of queer. I mean, it's, it's, thing. I wonder about that because, it, you know, from my perspective, it seems like everyone gay or straight occasionally gets wistful yes. about um, your glory days, so to speak, <laughs> or your adolescence or your young sure. adulthood. Like we all get wistful for that at times, but I guess what you hear about more often nowadays, I think you hear about, well, from my perspective, like you hear about gay men that get stuck in that, kind of perpetual adolescence, right? And I think part of it is that for a lot of gay men, you feel like you were cheated out of that experience that straight men go through in adolescence of just being young and wild and free. And so, you know, maybe you come out in college or in your young adulthood and you decide to act out that adolescence and maybe that's enough for you. Yeah. But it seems like, or from what I understand to be the case for a lot of gay men, it becomes a cycle that they just want to repeat over and over again of perpetually like feeling that thrill and excitement of the adolescence that they were cheated out of. Mm-hmm. But also, I guess it also stems from a place of, um, like, gay men or LGBT individuals that don't feel the need to adhere to like heteronormative, so to speak. Yeah, there's that customs. Yeah, like there's that aspect to it. Like when you think about monogamy or you think about quote unquote settling down, like all of that traditionally is in service of having children, raising a family, you know, your progeny, your legacy. 
Yeah. And like that's not on that's not on the table. And look, to be to be very clear, you know, it's like we weren't allowed to until like I mean, even yeah. if you wanted to like get married, like it's was illegal. I mean, yeah. there's still you know, and they're still fighting a lot of that. So it's And there was always that there was always that division of of gay folks that didn't believe in gay marriage. Because yeah. specifically because it's like all of that is in service to this heteronormative view of society that no. we in their eyes should fundamentally reject. Yeah. You know? And I see it. Yeah. I, I I fully believe I like anyone, straight, gay, you know, whatever, like you shouldn't feel bound by anything. Yeah. I but yeah, I but I'm, at the same time I think that like what 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 I'm doing with my life in terms of, you know, settling down, so to speak, or thinking about my legacy or my future or progeny and whatnot. Like, yeah, maybe a little bit of it is affected by, you know, a heteronormative view of society or whatnot, or what Mm -hmm. I've been ingrained to believe about society, but it's the way that I feel. I don't feel manipulated at this point in time in my, in my life. I don't feel manipulated into adhering to this. No, you know, Ollie Alexander from years and years in an interview, you know, someone was, people were asking him like, why does he write the things he writes? They're not necessarily universal, you know, especially being like such a visible queer person. Um, You know, should he be, more universal or like when he when he writes songs and things and he was like look I, I can't speak for everyone and I can't I can't I can't speak for everyone I can't I can't necessarily do that but I can speak for myself mm-hmm. right and this is what I feel and this is what I what I believe or this is this is how I want to live my life this is what brings me joy and if that changes it changes over time but like you know I, I can't I'm, I'm being authentic to me and I think what you're saying it's it's very true right it's like it could just be authentic to you. Yeah. So. And I think I think in the long term for society, like that's that's the best thing. I feel I truly believe that the vast majority of like ills in our society are built off of like people not being true to themselves. Or not being allowed to be true to themselves. Yeah. Well, it's a policing of just what is and what isn't acceptable, right? trying to break down why this song flopped why this album flopped in general i feel like there was a central bait and switch to this whole thing we talked about um the genetic link between call me maybe and i really like you yeah and the fact that that the song i really like you it was antithetical to what the hype over this album was going to be and what it reminded me of very strongly is um Christina Aguilera's Bionic album. <laughs> and when we were talking about that album, you know, you had brought up the fact that there was a lot of hype leading up to the release of that album about these unexpected collaborations that Christina Aguilera was doing, working with Lady Tron, working with Sia, um, working with um, Santi Gold, I think. Yeah. 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 You know, and those were the things that were getting people hyped up. And then we get Not Myself Tonight. Right. We get the Lady Gaga ripoff song as the single and people are like, wait a second. Is this what we've been waiting for? Is this Uh what Bionic is? And then immediately it was like a no one cares moment. Yeah. And I think that 
a very similar thing happens here where you're getting this idea that like, oh, Carly Rae Jepsen, she's collaborating with Haim. She's collaborating with Blood Orange. You have a mental picture of what this album is going to turn out to be. And then you get Tom Hanks lip syncing. I really, 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 really like you. Which in and of itself, like the song is. The song is fine. The song is fine. Yeah. But it. it Did it. Yeah. It doesn't feel substantive in the way that I wanted Carly Rae Jepsen's music to feel substantive. It's not substantive in the way that I really actually think that the song Your Type is a very substantive song, musically and lyrically. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think it's it just doesn't live up to the... It's a classic sort of, I, I want to say, marketing misstep. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, you're a marketer, I'm a marketer. Um, well, you know... and. <laughs> You have to you have to manage expectations, right? Mm-hmm. And if you've incorrectly managed expectations, it doesn't matter how good the end result is. If people's expectations are not met, then they will not see the quality or the intent behind what you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's just unfortunate. And then you really can't, especially in pop music, like if you've made, if once an album makes a first impression, it's very difficult to, to change that view. There was a characterization of Carly Rae Jepsen as the archetypal niche pop star. And these are artists like Robin, like mm-hmm. Charlie XCX, like Troy Sivan, uh-huh. artists that are making pop music in an era when pop music as a genre, kind of pop stars as an identity are dying out. Mm. Um, one of the articles I was reading had to do with the way that streaming media, self-released media, kind of the long tail of digital media that's out there for people to access and its role in dismantling kind of like the big establishment of the music industry. Yeah. It's really hampered the music industry's ability to foster the growth of a Michael Jackson, of a Madonna of a Beyonce when you have kind of the more viral sensations that are coming up avenues through which that you can't, that aren't tightly controlled and you can't predict and you can't replicate like organically. Yeah. And it just results in kind of whatever the mass, whatever the masses are listening to is pop music. And by Mm -hmm. and large in the last few years, less and less of that is quote unquote pop music. Yeah, it's like it's like indie pop is like the new pop for in it, you know because they're it's like lar- pop there's music, a couple pop music yeah. pop music has this like niche quality to it now that automatically makes it indie or like gives it like hipster cred. Like when you think about all the pop quote unquote pop artists that are now doing these like 80s things or 90s things stuff that we were alive to experience yeah the first time and then to realize like oh this is like a niche thing this is something that's bubbling under even though it is quote-unquote pop music it's actually indie music and the stuff that's popular the stuff that everyone is listening to it's kind of come full circle where a lot of the stuff that people are listening to again is hip-hop it's rap i I don't i mean like i'll listen to to I don't female rappers. We're female old. rappers, but we're if old. It, we're if it's a man, if it's a man starts rapping, I'm like next. We're we're not in the demo anymore. I know, I know. That's although, well, and maybe this is just telling on myself, but you know, Dua Lipa's uh, 
Future Nostalgia. I mean, amazing. I could listen to that forever. I mean, that just outs you as a gay man. I know, but it's also, hello, it also got like pop vocal album of the year, so. does it, So wait, does that make you out of touch? Because aren't the Grammys like out of touch? No, it means that, whatever. It just means that I am, I think it just means uh, that Dua Lipa transcends all boundaries. <laughs> I think it's just really good pop. Like not, it's not niche. It's not niche in that sense. But, but I, well, that's the thing is, I think that like when you think of that type of music, it's like if I think about pop music in the '90s or 2000s, in a lot of the eras that we've been talking about, it was dominant. <clears throat> it was dominant. You could make yeah. that type of music, and you would be marketed as the future pop star, the future yeah. worldwide sensation. Yeah. Whereas, like now, I don't think that that's the case. Yeah, cuz like also like cuz like where where is the adult contemporary uh what is that these days? You know, I guess it could be it's Adele if she ever comes back or <laughs> you know, but it's but you know what I mean? It's, it's Pink's like, Pink's fourth single is always an adult oh contemporary God, single. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you know what's funny though? It's like even Billie Eilish, you know there's this whole, I, I, Oh, I, Billie I, Eilish. I, do, I I love Billie Eilish. And like did you watch her her documentary? The, the one on Apple no. um, TV. It's really good. It's really See, good. what kind of music is Billie Eilish though? But that's what I'm saying. It's like, people are like, oh, like it's a, like, like the, the media narrative is that like, look at this creepy alt girl. Like you listen to the music and it's very pop. It's, it's pop. I mean like there's, okay. the, but it's, and it's, it's to just, people like are invested in being like, she's, but she's like, she is different, but like it's she's more, like homegrown it's more though, right? styling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah, that no, the appeal? And that's what, I, I don't know if that's the appeal. I mean, okay. I, I think part of it is, but I think it's just like her persona and like, I mean, she know, looks sort of some of her imagery. Well, and some of her imagery is like darker or maybe creepier, but like the music isn't necessarily like, it's all very digestible. I feel, I feel like the music establishment is very invested in being like, wh- who is Billy? like, like who can, <laughs> who, who understands her? Like who gets her? And like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm someone who doesn't get her. And then you listen to the music. It's like, there's really nothing to get. It's, just pop music. It's yeah. good pop music. Been there, done it's that. Well produced. Yeah, and so, but yeah, there is nothing. But again, new. to your but, no but to ideas. your point, but to your point about like even pop music being sort of niche, mm-hmm. like it's 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 like the most popular ones are sort of the niche pop artists. Well, the most popular, or quote unquote, niche, like the ones who are getting critical acclaim and yeah, who are coming to the forefront are. You know, it is it is niche, but then but then you also have like Taylor Swift winning album of the year, which with with folklore, which mm-hmm. I think was a really good album. Yeah, um, and I think this art this art well, but also very different, right? And and Taylor Swift's new output, not not what I would call within the genre of pop music. Yeah, yeah, um, but again, but it it's shifting sort of like what is pop? Well, that's what I think. I think that's the differentiation that I'm trying to make is like the genre of pop music. Uh-huh. Like sonically what pop music is versus what is considered pop music at any point in time. Yeah. Like yeah. to me, it's, it is that thing that, you know, we've talked about the early nineties pop music wasn't really pop music. Like pop music went from being Paula Abdul to new Jack swing, like hip hop R&B yeah. became pop music for the remainder yeah. of the nineties until bubblegum pop. I guess that's what I'm talking about. It's like, bubble, well, it was like, it was, it was like, like bubblegum pop yeah. music. Well, it was like, yeah, what 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 it was like Paul Abdul and then it was like like the Mariah the Whitney's and then even to some extent like Celine Dion type of music was like pop cuz some of it was upbeat, right? Like mm-hmm. 
and then and then yeah and then it's like new jack swing and then hip hop R&B and then like the majority really of stuff from high, like from like 95 to 98 most of the pop music was like hip hop or R&B music yeah yeah um anyway. so i think we're we're kind of we're kind of venturing back into that territory a little bit mm-hmm. where i don't think that i guess i'll i'll refer to it as bubblegum pop music cuz i think that there are aspects of Carly Rae Jepsen's music that become bubblegum pop it but that music is no longer it's no longer mainstream, and as a result, it's no longer maligned. It is beloved. Yeah, because it's it's sort <laughs> it's of beloved it's, it, by well, because credible sources. You know? Well, and there's been enough. There's been enough. Like I, you know, the study of pop culture was not a thing in the '80s and '90s, right? Yeah. But it is a thing now. That's like a recognized sort of field and you know people have written critically about pop at this point um you don't just have like joan didion's like notes on camp or whatever you know like you know you know what i mean like it's not like the the outline deep anymore, cut right? so but but it's you know it's it, it they're able people pop stars now are able to sort of you know when you say bubblegum pop play within that convention and upend sort of our expectations of what pop music is yeah. and what quote unquote like disposable or throwaway pop is like what bubblegum pop is. It's like, no, it can be really, you can do this, hit those nostalgia centers and still be really good. Right. And like, or good, whatever good is being defined as right now, like hitting, you know, each of those things. Yeah. And so like, yeah, I, I think that is, that is really interesting about it. Um, It's really frightening to me though, how quickly nostalgia is, is coming on. I know. So I don't know if you've noticed, but I, I, I'm, I'm starting to try and part my hair away from the side. Like in the middle? Not totally the middle. Because, okay, so... Are you trying to, like, age into a new haircut? Yeah. So I'm uh. trying to um, not feel old. When I was reading uh-huh. about how pop music was moving away from, you know quote unquote pop or what pop has been for the past 15 or so years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was looking at the list of like all the, like the quote unquote viral pop artists. I was like, I have no idea who these people are. <laughs> Lil, Lil ba- ba- baby here. Lil baby. Someone with three X's in their name. Triple extension. <laughs> oh, te- I know. I know. I'm always like, is that, I always say tentacle. In the my guy head. with the, the guy with the six and the nine in his name. That's like, in jail yeah. under witness protection yeah. or whatever. <laughs> like I was who like, like, I don't who know. like DM, who like DM'd Lil Nas X. I don't know who these people are. Um, so that made me feel old. It made me feel like a boomer. And then I got really in true boomer fashion. I got really indignant about the fact that the term boomer has, um, mutated to mean anyone older than a millennial. Yeah. Well, are you not a millennial? Cause I'm a millennial. I'm like the oldest millennial. I am the oldest millennial. I am on the cusp between millennial and Gen X. Ah, so I'm I, that. And that's the thing to me is I'm like, well, if anything, I'm a Gen Xer, but Gen Zers have fully just co-opted <laughs> their term boomer, which yeah, but like anyone who's older than them, which is, I mean, Correct me if I'm wrong, but like boomers, i.e. baby boomers, it refers to like a very specific time post-war yeah, when all of our men were 50s. coming back from World War II. And so there was a, a small base of people in the generation previously because they had all gone to war. They came wow. back and they had a lot of babies. So like mm-hmm. there's this disproportionate bloat to the population 
just within that period of time of people that were born like in the 50s. Yeah, because it was like prosperity and, yeah. you know, American industrialism and capitalism took off and we were the world leader for like the first time. Yeah. So there's yeah. something very semantic about the term boomer that is meant to indicate something. Whereas like a very gen- specific generation. Gen Xers are typically people who graduated college into a recession, I think. Yeah. Although it's funny because I'm a young Gen Xer and it, by the time that old Gen Xers, like the Reality Bites folks, were experiencing that recession, graduating college. I was also experiencing a, experiencing a different recession for a different reason when I got mm-hmm. out of college. I just thought that was all Gen Xers were like Reality Bites, the breakfast, or what do you call Brat Pack. Yeah, um, I, I always thought I was too young to be a Gen Xer, but then I'm essentially like right in the middle of the transitional phase. Very weird. Yeah. Don't call me a boomer. Um, I'm I'm actively trying to part my hair in the center. I'm reconsidering all the genes. Um, is 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 this going to affect your enjoyment of Carly Rae Jepsen? I was like, is this going to affect our friendship? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> when you see me in person again, and I'm wearing wide leg jeans. No, the reason. I, well, the reason my hair for the last ten years has been long, and like kind of swept to the side was I was transitioning away from a spikier haircut mm-hmm. that I was like, I will never be able to age with this haircut. Like I can't age along with the side of this haircut. So I need something that will transition into something that's cute now and could conceivably continue for a while. I feel like nothing is, is cute forever though. It's th- not, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I think but. that that was the thing too, is that like, so when this whole thing happened and we'll wrap, let's wrap this whole conversation about Carly Rae Jepsen up by talking about how old we're getting. Um, Because Carly Rae Jepsen is surprisingly old. But um, when I first started hearing this thing about like, people are like, oh, like side parts are out. And I've just spent the past four or five years trying to get my hair to solidly part to one side because it doesn't, it didn't want to before and now it won't stop. And then um, you like skinny jeans are out, right? Like hearing Mm -hmm. all these things and then me feeling really, really old and out of touch. And, but also at the same time being like, oh, these are the youths of America looking at pictures of like people like you and me when we were in high school and thinking, Uh God, that looked cool. Yeah. When I look at pictures of me in high school and I'm like, horrendous, throw up a little in my mouth. (laughs) Yeah. I look at that and I, I look at all these shapeless things and like super baggy stuff. And it's like, I looked enormous. In high school, because we didn't have, like, you had to wear big things. Yeah. You, you know couldn't I mean? get anything there's, else. There was no way to no. get clothes. And that was, the, like, shorts that went down below your knees. Oh, yeah. There was no way. There was no way you were no. going to get shorts even at your knee. There was no way that you were going to get a t-shirt that didn't, like, a t-shirt that was fully, like, twice the size of your waist at the bottom. I feel yeah. like you look at the t-shirts that we wore, and they they looked like... um sundresses like, yeah we could have belted yeah. them in the center <laughs> and put the a- only thing that hasn't changed is that all of that still only looks good on very thin people i think that's fashion and with a, with a very it is but but you know especially the I, I feel like in this era where we had gone to more tailored and more fitted things yeah it, it was that could sort of apply to whoever you were right like you tailor it you find something that's tailored to you and it it, it 
it will flatter you at whatever size you are. And there are things that you can pull from that were in fashion that, you know, you could find your look. Yeah. I feel like if we all have to go back to oh, wide leg pants or, <laughs> you know, oversized shirts, like if you're like me, 5'8", and like I don't have very long legs, like there's no sense of those things that like is ever flattering. I think that, but I, so, to, but I think that any of that could be tailored because, so. Yes. No, you're right. Even you're in right. this, even in this whole period of side parting my hair and skinny jeans, I always felt a little bit of discomfort about how cartoony I felt being in such skinny jeans. Cause I don't, okay. I'm, I'm like, a, I'm fully like a body dysmorphic skinny person that talks about myself like I'm fat, but full disclosure, mm-hmm. my BMI is like 24.4, which for an Asian person is not skinny. Um, but like squeezing my legs into skinny jeans because um japanese people i talk about having what we call daikon ashi (laughs) which basically means your legs are like big daikon radishes where it goes straight down from your hip all the way down to your ankle at like one size and there's no indentation where your knee is and your ankles are a little thick um fully me though and and that's where i feel like when I was wearing skinny jeans and I, th- this is where my mentality started switching is like, once it got into my head, like, Oh, this nineties, this nineties uh, vibe is resurging. And we were out to dinner the other weekend and I was looking at these guys, these dude bros um, out to dinner with their girlfriends. And I was just looking at from across the outdoor patio and I was like, Oh, I see it. I see how like, the caricature of the caricature of the caricature of the side parted hair and the skinny jeans have resulted in like this uncanny, uncanny valley of what this trend <laughs> is. So this trend is now over. So we need to yeah, do a yeah, hard yeah. reset. Yeah. Yeah. My goal is just to find like that perfect pant where the differential between the actual size of my thigh and the size of the pant thigh is about two inches three inches maybe of ease you don't need it to be super baggy you don't need it to be super tight you just need it to be the right difference between the size of your clothes and the size of your body and i think you're all set tailored tailored what does this have to do with carly ray jepson oh because pop music isn't pop music <laughs> anymore and i'm too old to realize <laughs> oh. that oh oh okay that's okay. among among all the things that i didn't realize becoming an ancient old boomer person was pop music like Carly Rae Jepsen makes isn't pop music anymore. It's indie music. Um, Jeans are no longer skinny and my hair should no longer part to the side. What happens? So my hair is buzzed on the sides and then the top is long and I push it to one side. Usually does that consider a side part? If I don't have any parts, the, the part that seems very extreme to me, like your buzz is pretty extreme. Yeah. I th- I feel like in the coming years it's gonna soften. It's you. not gonna. I think your I think your buzz is gonna soften back a little bit. The problem is that, as an Asian person with Asian hair, you cannot soften this buzz. You can soften it. It a grows. Little. Yours, it, it grows out. Yours is yours is yours is buzzed from top to bottom. I mean, maybe that's a quarantine thing, right? Because you've been cutting no, your hair in quarantine. No, that's I've always done it. Oh, but no, but before you could you could ease up a little bit. You could get like a number two up at the top. Oh, I do. Well, I do a half to a one. Oh, okay. Cause I go from a half to like a four at the top. Yeah. But my hair doesn't lay like yours. No, I have to blow dry my hair down. 
Yeah, even when I do, I can't like until it's like and also this long. once you start center parting your hair, it'll all fix itself. Ugh, I had a center part in high school and it looked like a mushroom. We all did. We all did. It's fine. Oh, that's terrible. I'm How did we get our bangs that. so hard in the nineties? I can't get the edge of my hair to look that crisp now. Is it because my hair's thinning? <laughs> I, I just think of how crisp, like, you know, we had those bowl butt cuts and it was yeah. so, it was that Devin Sawa realness of such a hard line to your bangs. I mean, my mom would just cut it. Straight. My mom cut my hair and it was just cut. Magic. Bowl. Anyway. Um, bowl cuts are the, are the Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh, oh wait. Can I, can I, Fully circle back to, this is going to be my wrap up. I'm going to circle back to Gay Joy. Okay. Because this critical association I make with Carly Rae Jepsen and the gay subterfuge that I undergo listening to her music lyrically. And we were listening to your type as this form of insecure, unrequited, obsessive feeling right? That is so common amongst these songs. But I carry this feeling throughout Carly Rae Jepsen's discography. And when she released Dedicated Side B last year, mm-hmm. she released this, um, there are ba- ba- basically B-sides to her Dedicated album that came out a couple years ago. But the first track on Dedicated Side B is a song called This Love Isn't Crazy. Mm-hmm. And if you take your gay subterfuge of all the self-consciousness that you felt as an adolescent coming to terms with your sexuality and you place yourself in your type mentally with that song. And then you go into this song called this love isn't crazy. And she's basically trying to validate the love that she feels for another person and this love that they feel for each other, you know, to reassure each other that this is natural, that this is, that this, that what we're feeling is correct and we should not be second guessing it. That to me takes me like full circle into what you're talking about with, Years and years, the idea of gay joy, the avail, uh, the idea of validating your love, but fully through the lens of like a non-LGBT identifying woman. Yeah, but yeah, it's great. It's swirling. That's got that. It's very like um like dancing on my own. That there's a that's a pulsing driving beat that is just fantastic and it's a it's a it's a pride anthem in the making make you feel okay about yourself everyone feel great i feel great about carly reed jepson i feel great about this episode except for all the parts where i was stammering and my when my script ended and i didn't know what to say anymore (laughs) i feel you barry (laughs) barry as my friend and fellow podcast you're my uh, your your type no that doesn't make sense it's not it's not a thing i am my type No, I'm not. I'm not my type. No, I don't think you are. (laughs) (laughs) I'd hate myself. Okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, take us away. I I will. I will. You know, because we've arrived at this point. And, you know, speaking of someone who is my type, I'm going to give special thanks to Adam Elder. Mm-hmm. for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopperdeeper.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice and check us out on social at flopperdeeper on Instagram and Twitter. And then also facebook.com slash flopperdeeper. <laughs> <laughs> and we're still waiting. I, I said it, I said it, I said it before the break. Uh, we're still waiting for your emails at flopperdeeper at gmail.com. Reach out, touch us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I eagerly us, await that. Let ba- us know if let us know if we're your type. I eagerly eagerly await that badge notification with the number one 
showing that there's <laughs> one email. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.